having having kind of switched health insurance providers a few times as uh, as I've moved through different uh, roles and stuff, it's it's uh, become pretty burdensome. And so I, I immediately see the value of Opolis and of the uh, employment comments. Welcome to Opolis Public Radio, where we dig into how a rapidly changing world is impacting our lives and what we can do about it, with a focus on freelancing, finances, and the future of work. Welcome to episode 12 of Opolis Public Radio. Today I'm joined with by uh, Aaron McMillan, my friend. Aaron is the product manager of Gnosis Conditional Token Framework. And after creating Dow Hub in 2016 and retiring from his professional basketball career, which we're going to talk about in 2017, Aaron's primary focus has been on the the, uh, the Dow ecosystem and Ethereum-based governance models and uh, fund allocation in the ecosystem. So, welcome, Aaron. Good to see you, man. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me. I think John. I look taller than you right now, but I'm not like by like a lot. <laughs> no, I just need to uh, drop my desk down a little bit and just raise it up. <laughs> Yeah, so I mentioned this in the introduction. Uh, you're a former professional basketball player. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think everybody who sees you at, at like a conference event is like, dude, who's the tall guy? Yeah, I, I guess I stick out a little bit. Um, for, for reference, for, for people I haven't met at a conference, I'm 6'8", uh, which maybe doesn't come through on camera or on Twitter or, or wherever no. else you interact with me online. Um, <laughs> no, it but, doesn't. Trust yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, at uh, Denver, when uh, John and I first met, it was, um, it was. I think John, you were pretty surprised, right? Uh, or, or, yeah. Like caught off guard, at least. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. I mean, most of the guys that we meet in the space are, you know, not that physically, you know, right endowed. I guess you could say that way, you know, height wise and size wise. You know, you're just like, yeah, you know. Just a tech guy, you know, and here you are walking in. I'm just like, holy shnikes, man. <laughs> I was like, what did you play professional basketball or something? He's like, yeah, actually I did. So tell everybody a little bit about that. I, I mean, I, I I haven't heard the whole, whole story. So yeah. why don't you tell um, us? I mean, so I, I guess where to start on that. I, I, I played some college basketball in the U.S. Uh, for a little school called Gardner-Webb University. Uh, they're based in uh, – Boiling Springs in North Carolina, tiny little town, um, but they're a little D1 school, played there from uh, 2006 through 2010, and then from 2010 to 2017, uh, played for, for a variety of different clubs, mostly back home in Australia, um, so for, for three years in Australia's uh, National League, which is our, our kind of mini version of the NBA, um, paychecks are not nearly as good, but it's a really, really great competition. <laughs> Um, so I played for a few clubs there, the Wollongong Hawks, the Melbourne Tigers and Melbourne United. Um, and then uh, also played for a team out in Germany for a season, uh, a team out in the UK for a season, um, and then uh, various uh, kind of second tier uh, teams uh, in Australia as well. So I kind of got to travel around a lot in Australia, kind of playing for different clubs and then uh, a little bit internationally as well. That's really cool. So um that had to be a little exhausting though traveling around and doing all that all the time yeah i mean kind of but i don't know basketball's a i mean i guess just professional sports in general like you, you tend to have a reasonable amount of kind of downtime recovery time it uh so yeah and travel i guess is just kind of part of it 
Uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's exhausting on the one hand, but then, you know, you, you get a reasonable amount of time to, to recover from that exhaustion as well. You know, like that's kind of built into your scheduling. Uh, it's really I was, was going to make a joke about like, I was going to make a joke about the traveling in the crypto space, but we don't do that right now. Yeah, right. I mean, no one does. Boston, you know, the professional sports players don't do it either. The NBA was like locked up in the bubble for months. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, you know, most leagues just are not playing at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, actually the thing that was probably more tiring was for a number of years, I was playing like back-to-back seasons, like, Australia's first league would play uh, through the summer and then the second tier league would play through the, uh, the, the winter. And so just kind of like back to back year round. And that was pretty exhausting. Um, just like never having an off season. Yeah. Okay. So you decided to hang up the shoes and come to, so tell us a little bit about your transition into the, into the blockchain space, into the, I mean, yeah. what are we even calling it nowadays? The crypto space, blockchain space, know. Ethereum space, who knows? Like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. whatever. How, how did you get here? So, I I mean, I originally discovered Bitcoin in like late 2013. Um, I was just watching the news and, and something came up about like the deep web, the dark web. And, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go poke around on it. And so uh, downloaded Tor and started poking through a bunch of Onion sites. Uh, and, you know, there's a few marketplaces and stuff up on, uh, up on Tor. And every one of them, everything was denominated in Bitcoin. And so I'm like, what is this Bitcoin stuff? What is it worth? You know, if I see something as one Bitcoin or 10 Bitcoin or 100 Bitcoin or whatever it was, what, is, what does that mean? And so that's kind of where I fell into the, the cryptocurrency rabbit hole. It's just like I stumbled across it uh, on some Tor marketplaces and, and kind of needed to figure out what it was. Um, and it was kind of interesting to me at the time, but I, I didn't really click uh, immediately. And it wasn't until maybe like a year and a half later that it, it kind of really clicked more. Um, and I had been kind of passively paying attention to it, but it was Vitalik's kind of uh, early blog posts on uh, Ethereum, on the concept of Ethereum, that really made the kind of the power of blockchain technology really kind of click and, and make sense to me. In, in particular, the uh, the idea of DAOs. Um, and so uh, I, I got involved with uh, Ethereum kind of early on. And then uh, the, uh, the DAO project in 2016 was the thing that kind of really got me actively involved. Uh, and that kind of, I guess, kicked off my transition from playing basketball to uh, working in the, the kind of blockchain slash Ethereum space. Uh, it was essentially I uh, started a forum with a friend, uh, Dow Hub, which kind of ended up becoming the kind of de facto home for the Dow. Um, and from there, uh, you know, through the, the kind of meteoric rise and, and absolutely catastrophic fall of the yeah, Dow. Yeah, in, in, like, in like epic form. Right. Um, yeah, so through that whole process, I kind of got this baptism of fire of, uh, of kind of how to build and support a community and then... Uh, I guess, made a, a whole bunch of connections to various people in the space uh, and, and can, I guess was able to kind of leverage that experience into uh, some freelancing gigs and eventually some uh, full-time gigs, uh, which has kind of now landed me in my role at Gnosis. Um, I actually first freelanced with Gnosis back in, in kind of 2016, 2017, uh, helping to set up a bunch of their community uh, infrastructure prior to their original token launch and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, so it's kind of fun to go now full circle back to Gnosis and, uh, and be working with them again. Very cool. So uh, you're referring to the actual Dow Dow, like the Dow. Um, right. t- tell, tell everybody a little bit about that experience. Like yeah. you were, the, you were front and center with that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience. I mean, highs and lows, obviously it was a roller coaster. Uh, the, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know where to jump in with that. It's like, for, for me, in terms of like my professional development, it was, it was probably the best thing you could ask for in terms of like really learning how bad things can get and how to deal with all of that kind of stuff. Um, for the ecosystem, it was obviously uh, pretty, I guess, detrimental at the time and, and I guess arguably uh, kind of for all time. Uh, and it was, a you know, obviously a lot of people uh, were affected pretty negatively by it. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, tough thing to kind of be a part of and to try to help people deal with. Um, for, for anyone that's not familiar with it, I guess, uh, the DAO was a project back in 2016. It was kind of the first uh, attempt at a, a DAO kind of being launched uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and it, it raised a, an astronomical amount of money, uh, I think something to, to the tune of about $160 million worth of uh, Ether at one point. Uh, and then shortly after, uh, someone found and started to uh, attempt to exploit a vulnerability in the code, which basically allowed them to uh, initiate kind of siphoning off funding from the DAO. And the next kind of month was uh, a, a series of kind of rapid fire approaches to, to mitigate that, um, which eventually uh, concluded with the, the hard fork uh, that birthed Ethereum Classic right. uh, along with uh, Mainnet Ethereum. Um, so as you can imagine, that whole kind of process, uh, there, was, there was a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of people needing, needing help and support and, uh, and you know, just uh, a, a place to vent, I guess. And so Dowhub kind of became that. Yeah, what was your opinion on the, on, on the fork on the Classic folks? You know, there was a lot of, I guess you could call it uh, dogmatic reasons why you know, the belief systems of, you know, code is law, you know, this happened, we shouldn't fork it, you know, we shouldn't undo the natural events of the market. Like, what's your personal opinions on that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously, I was was very heavily biased uh, at the time and still am because I had uh, a significant amount of my own funds in the Dow. Uh, I believed in that project really strongly. And so I I don't think I can ever really give a properly kind of unbiased opinion on it. Um, but my, I guess my argument would be that uh, code is law is misunderstanding what blockchains are. Uh, and realistically, like it's, it's the, the consensus mechanism that is law. And so if, if your consensus mechanism uh, allows for, for uh, forking, essentially, like if, you're, if, if the community decides that what happened was wrong for whatever reason, then that is kind of what's law, and you have you have the ability, obviously, to to fork away or to, to maintain the uh, maintain some other version of the fork. And if people follow, they follow. If they don't, they don't. Uh, but I think that's the, the the big maybe misunderstanding that a lot of people seem to have about how blockchains work in general. It's, it's well, it's, it seems like it's the tyranny of the extremes. You know, like when when people talk about code as law. You know, that sort of presupposes that, like, we're going to get it all right, 
perfectly and that just we're going to, you know, just take our hands off this entirely and that, that there's just, you know, there's no changing it ever. Like, it's just going to be how it is. And that just seems to be an extreme caricature of perhaps even a, I, I wouldn't even say idealistic or utopian outcome. It seems almost dystopian in some ways. Like, if you actually play that out to, quote, perfection, it seems like it could backfire quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a, it's ultimately a naive way to design systems, you know, systems that are that are entirely immutable, that can't, uh, can't be changed, tend to eventually fail. Um, and so you need to have some ability to adapt and the, the Ethereum blockchain, as with every blockchain that I'm aware of, has some ability to adapt through forking. Um, and again, that's what, what kind of drives that is the, uh, the consensus mechanism, the will of the community, or the will of the, the people kind of uh, doing that role of consensus. You know, in the case of Bitcoin, that's miners. In the case of, uh, of uh, Ethereum, that's uh, miners, soon to be stakers. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, the, the will of the people participating in the network uh, and, and kind of you know, willing to hold, uh, <laughs> hold the token. So we have a comment from one of our friends, uh, Matt Lockyer, who says, code is law, down with the old models, futocracy, ZK, sovereignty. <laughs> so I just figured I'd give Matt a shout out there for trolling us on our Q&A, which is a reminder, if anybody does have a question, legitimate or just want to troll us, that's totally fine. The troll box is open. You can go to the Q&A, drop your question in there. We'll answer it on air if we can. If, if uh, we have time, we're going to do some Q&A at the end. So feel free to populate your questions now. And uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, we know, Matt. <laughs> Don't worry. He said, it's just jokes, just having fun. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you, Matt. So uh, anyway, back to, the, back to the conversation here, Aaron. So um, you said you, that you've come full circle now. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work at Colony and what you did there and then how you kind of came full circle back to Gnosis and, and working on the conditional token framework. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, originally when I was uh, freelancing with Gnosis uh, uh, several years ago, uh, again, I was just kind of setting up uh, community infrastructure forums and, uh, and chat groups and all that kind of stuff and, and just helping to, uh, I guess, seed the community. Uh, I, I guess from uh, from there, I, I took on a, a community director role at uh, First Blood, which is a, an esports company, uh, and I was there for uh, a year and a half, two years, uh, and enjoyed that role. Uh, kind of setting up same thing, their community, running a bunch of uh, esports tournaments and all that kind of thing. And then uh, Jack from Colony reached out uh, at one point, I guess October in two thousand eighteen. Uh, and, and offered me a role with Colony, kind of doing the same thing in preparation for Colony's uh, mainnet launch. Uh, and so that was a, a really great opportunity for me to get kind of back into the DAO space, which is obviously what had really gotten me passionate about uh, Ethereum and the blockchain space as a whole. So my work at Colony was, uh, was essentially around kind of helping to build the community, uh, get their product in people's hands so that they could start to kind of iterate on it and, uh, and work towards a kind of functional uh, DAO framework. That, that development process took kind of a little bit longer than what we'd initially hoped. We ran into some, some pretty big issues with, uh, with essentially like the data layer of an application that's kind of fully decentralized. Spent a lot of time 
trying to uh, get this technology uh, OrbitDB, which is a, a um, essentially treats kind of uh, IPFS as a database. And it's, it's a really cool piece of technology, but for an application like Colony, it, uh, it struggled to kind of keep pace. And we had a, we had a whole lot of issues with kind of data replication uh, where you would want, you know, you try to load someone's profile or you try to load a colony and kind of tasks and, and kind of data associated with it just would never show up. Uh, and so at, at one point we had to make this decision to just kind of rip that whole thing out and put in kind of a, a centralized metadata layer, um, a, a kind of just a Mongo database to essentially handle that load, make this kind of compromise on, on uh, a small piece of the, the architecture being centralized to, to get the app to be more functional. Uh, that all got implemented and then we kind of really ramped up getting people on board and, and got to a point where there was a, a good number of colonies functioning. Uh, and now, uh, since I kind of left Colony a few months back, uh, they've, they've shifted gears again now to going uh, much more, uh, I guess, back towards the, uh, the the more kind of fully decentralized route and, and really enabling uh, much more permissionless open uh, DAOs. Um, Colony is a really interesting DAO framework for anyone who's not uh, familiar with it. It's this kind of permissionless uh, and, I guess, meritocratic uh, DAO framework where your influence in the DAO is, uh, or in the, the organization, the colony, is meant to be essentially a reflection of the amount of work that you've contributed. You earn native tokens from the colony for doing work. Uh, along with that native token, you earn reputation. And then this reputation score has this kind of constant decay function. So uh, all of the, the kind of governance decisions are based on this reputation score. And uh, over time, because of that decay function, you kind of normalize the reputation uh, distribution towards uh, I, I guess it, it kind of optimizes the reputation distribution for the people that have kind of recently contributed, uh, which is a really nice uh, kind of quality. The people that are actively contributing uh, kind of earn more uh, influence over the organization, but you can kind of separate the idea of uh, control and ownership where when I say ownership, I guess I mean like the ability to receive rewards from the activities of the colony. So if the colony is making kind of financial distributions or token distributions, uh, it would be based on your token holdings and your reputation. So kind of a, a happy middle ground between uh, contributions over all time and uh, recent contributions. And then if you're making governance decisions, it would be based just on uh, reputation. So much more optimized for kind of recent contributions. Uh, that's, a, I guess, a really quick high-level overview of what Colony is and, uh, and what I did there. But, but yeah, more recently have uh, moved over to uh, Gnosis full-time. What I'm doing there is uh, working with the Conditional Tokens Framework, which is the underlying technology for prediction markets like Omen and Polymarket. The Conditional Tokens Framework is really, really cool. It's essentially like uh, logic or, uh, yeah, tokenized logic. So you you create a, a condition um, will trump get elected in 2020 and then you can uh, define outcomes yes and no and from that uh, you can then kind of split collateral into uh, corresponding conditional tokens so you can take say die split it into collateral so you get a yes die and a no die token that are redeemable for die 
in the case that uh, the condition or the question kind of resolves to that outcome. So if Trump gets elected, yes, die is worth one die. If Trump does not get elected, no die is worth one die. Um, and so that's obviously the, uh, from that, the, the idea of building out kind of prediction markets is, is uh, a fairly straightforward step where you just set up a, uh, an automatic market maker between those two tokens. And then the, essentially the, the relative price of those tokens corresponds to the, the odds of that event happening. So if, it, if it's trading, say, 60-40 one way, then you say the, the odds of that event are 60-40. Um, but some other kind of really interesting use cases there are things like, uh, again, kind of this, this idea of conditional logic. We can actually set up kind of uh, like if this, then that kind of uh, scenarios like we've just described. But you can also set up like uh, if A or B, then this thing's worth something. So I was like, you, you can create basically like collections of outcomes. So say you have a question that has five different outcomes. You could uh, make a collection that is just A, but then you can also do one that's uh, a collection that combines, say, B, C, D, and E. And that outcome collection can uh, you know, become one conditional token. So you're saying, like, if A occurs this, but if B, D, C, uh, B, yeah, B, C, D, or E occurs, then that, then that token is kind of valuable. And then the, the other really neat part of that is that you can kind of stack these on top of each other. So you can create um, some more kind of complex logic where you can say like, if this event occurs and that event occurs, then this token is actually worth something. Uh, so you can say like, if Trump gets elected and this, I don't know, and uh, what's the name of the, uh, the, the justice he nominated? I forget. Amy uh, Coney Barrett. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if, if Trump gets elected and the and uh, Amy gets uh, uh, gets appointed to the Supreme Court, then this thing is actually worth something. So like you can kind of stack these things on top of each so other. So it's uh, what do they call that in the betting world? They call that something uh, like a string bet or something. But like um, parlay. Parlay. Yeah, it's a parlay. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's so like a six-way parlay. <laughs> parlay you know it's like hey uh let's see amy coney barrett's gonna get you know a, a, a confirmed trump wins the democrats take the senate and blah 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 you could like layer it all on top of each other and you could basically right. have a parlay yeah exactly so you can create these kind of really uh much more complex positions out of a bunch of uh, uh independent markets or independent and that's uh, interesting positions. so okay um, so t tell 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 us what you're doing I, I got I got how it works. That's really interesting. I mean, it's uh, it's basically creating like a little a token economy for prediction markets that that sort of works unto itself, right? So like, it's just all sorts of different uh, risk blending and bet blending and yeah. And so, I mean, I guess that's that's one of the things that's kind of a bit. Uh, is possible. It hasn't actually been implemented in an existing prediction market yet. Like, there's there's no. Uh, okay. No, no front end now that it kind of exposes that functionality that's available on the contract level. Uh, so all of the front ends, Omen and Polymarket and all that, right now give you kind of one layer. Uh, we haven't. No one's exposed that kind of combinatorial outcomes yet. But hopefully soon, we'll see. Um, I, I'm not aware of anyone that's implementing it yet, but it's uh, it's something that's yeah we're we're kind of really excited to to see happen. Um, 
the I think like the more interesting applications of that uh, further down the road, like the thing that really uh, gets me excited about it is actually kind of, again, circling back to the, the kind of DAO concept. Uh, and another concept that I read about in one of uh, Vitalik's really early posts uh, is Futaki, which is this uh, concept of kind of governance by prediction markets, where you have, uh, you have say, a proposal for, uh, for, for an organization and you base whether or not you actually pass that proposal, whether or not you execute on it, um, you base that on a prediction market's prediction of the kind of impact or the outcome of that uh, of that proposal. So you, you could say like, say you've got an organization, uh, it has um, shares or tokens or whatever it is, and you say this, the goal of this organization is basically to maximize the value of this token. So when you make decisions, typically, you know, you have some board of uh, some management uh, kind of tier in the organization that kind of makes the high level decisions about what the organization should be doing. And they presumably do so uh, with the intent of helping to raise that, that price for, you know, for, the, for shareholders or whatever it is. Uh, in this case, you would kind of put that responsibility into a, a prediction market where you say, will proposal A uh, essentially, uh, will it have more than X impact on uh, the price of the token or will, you know, if, if this uh, proposal passes, will the token, the shares, the, whatever it is, be worth more than X? Uh, and if the market, you know, after some period of analysis is uh, indicating that it will, then that proposal passes. If the market indicates that it will not, then that proposal fails. Have I ever told you about my idea for uh, uh, the implementation of crowd-based governance for like professional sports? I have not. Let's hear it. So, um, so I grew up a big baseball fan, right? So my dad used to take me to the ballpark. We used to sit in the press box when he would take stats for the, you know, the people that needed the stats, right? So he would be the one who actually created the box scores for the newspapers and whatnot when I was a kid. And, you know, so I got, I got really sort of deep into like the decision-making in, in baseball games. Right. So like you, you see how people make pitching changes and maybe even, you know, pinch runners, pinch hitters, whatever, like just, you know, even personnel changes um, before the game. Right. So like, how am I, how's my lineup going to stack up against the team that we're playing uh, the starting pitcher, the relief pitchers, when they come in, all that kind of stuff. Well, wouldn't it be cool if as a season ticket holder for say the Rockies, I could sit in my seat and from an app, I could actually participate in the in-game decision-making via uh, some version of a prediction market by using tokens that I'm allocated by my season ticket purchases. And I can actually vote on like who the relief pitcher is going to be or to replace the pitcher or whatever it might be. And there's some blend of governance decision-making that comes in. The manager still has some power, but then once there's enough power that comes from the crowd, and this is a big incentive to actually show up to the game, right? Cause you wouldn't be able to do this just from your house. You'd actually have to come to the game. So that would incentivize like, you know, all sorts of things like buying more beers and hot dogs and all other things. But, <laughs> but, but this could be, you could create your own little economy inside the park, including decision-making from the stands. It would really, cool. To me, it would democratize the experience and it would be a huge incentive to come because you know how it is. I mean, how many times have I sat in my chair 
at the Rockies and like complained about the pitcher they're putting in. Why are you putting in McGee? What are you doing? He's going to blow it. And then he does. It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, I mean, even off season, you know, participation with the general manager and evaluating free agents and things like you, you could, I think you could gather a massive amount of intelligence on a group scale because yeah. there there's, there's like really smart people that are in the fandom that just never get to contribute anything as far as that sort of knowledge share. Yeah, no, I agree. I, th- I think that's a, a really interesting concept. I think like the, I think one of the, the real challenges with something like that, uh, uh, there's a, probably a few, but one of them uh, more than be just like you know, <laughs> real time responsiveness in, uh, in uh, a, a game situation. Like, I guess, the the more inputs you have, generally the slower a decision is. So I was like, it it would be pretty uh, pretty difficult, I imagine, to coordinate uh, around actually making good decisions in the in the context of a uh, of a game. That said, I mean, there's there's been things like uh, Twitch plays Pokemon, and and Twitch plays just about every game uh, where you you actually hand over control of the game to all of the participants in the Twitch chat. And so, like, right. so, you know, Twitch plays Pokemon. You essentially enter a down arrow in chat, uh, and the the guy on uh, on screen moves down. But it, what it does is like take the average of all of the inputs over some period of time. Uh, yeah, and nor- it, it basically does whatever the yeah the, and so, like, the you, highest yeah. frequency of of input is. Exactly. Yeah. So you have um, this, um, you know literally thousands of people all collectively playing this one game. And so it sounds like this is, this is kind of what you're suggesting there is like yeah. having thousands of people, all of the, all of the spectators collectively uh, playing this one game of baseball or playing kind of this, this game of managing or, or coaching a game of baseball. Well, I, I just uh, think it would be, concept. you know, you, you see, a, there's a, there's a, and, and this doesn't even begin to talk about the actual turning a, a major league sports franchise into a cooperative of sorts, like a Dow or its own sort of, uh, community-owned group. I mean, take think about Green Bay Packers, and then amplify that by like a hundred as far as in, you know actual involvement in in the uh, yeah not just the, not just the oper- operations but the actual gameplay right and uh, and then you gamify the entire stadium right to like incentivize people to like uh, become consumers of different things of the ballpark and whatnot. I I, these, I just think that you know from a you know, when you look at the way the ownership model is, you got some wealthy guy who sits in the owner's box. He's got some dipshit GM. Sometimes they're good, but a lot of times <laughs> you get these guys that don't know, you know, they're not really that good or, or whatever reason their decisions have not panned out to seem good. Um, no, no, and I mean, I, I know about that firsthand. I've, I've had some fantastic GMs at some of the clubs that I've played for, and I've had some some really horrible ones. Exactly. So, like, you know, the, you're, you're sort of putting – there's a major point of failure there. And it's like, well, why, why, why would you not want to use the collective intelligence of your fan base that some of them might be not that smart, but there's a lot of really smart people that follow this stuff, like, religiously and that are very intelligent. And it seems like you could use a, a collaborative approach to really um, – Yes, technical implementation. There's a lot of issues here, and I, I'm not even yeah, going to get into yeah. the into the I details like, of it. But idealistically, or just as an idea, you know, to me it sounds really interesting because I know why I go to the ballpark. 
or anybody might go to a basketball game or a hockey game or any of these, you know, soccer games or whatever. And like, I could see, I mean, the passion that people have as fans being able to actually influence outcomes and like being rewarded or, you know, or not for, you know, your, your contributions. I think it could be very interesting. There's two things I want to touch on there. I'll come back to the, like the, the outcomes in a minute. The first thing is just like the, uh, the executives. And I think like, I, I, in like ideologically, I love the idea of, uh, of opening up that, that kind of power to the crowd. Um, in, in reality though, like, I think there's actually some, some functions that an executive has uh, or performs that can't be performed kind of by a crowd. And, and the big one is just like secrecy. Like there's, there's a whole bunch of negotiation that goes on uh, behind the scenes that you can't let slip because, uh, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with sensitive information. You're dealing with, uh, with uh, trading a player who, who uh, you know, you want to get off the roster or you're dealing with uh, negotiating someone's salary and, uh, you know, you, you have to maintain whatever leverage you can. Uh, and DAOs, crowdsourced information, is horrible at keeping secrets. So, yeah, it's true. You you can't, I don't think you can realistically outsource to a crowd. Yeah, Um, no, you're you're probably right. So let's let's transition um, to talking about sort of mechanisms that might protect those kinds of features because I think we're doing something similar at Opolis, right? Where we've got this sort of board of stewards. That's one of the reasons I like Opolis's uh, design is because it it recognizes that fact. It recognizes the fact that there is value in in having pieces of the organization that are able to uh, have some kind of uh, executive power and not necessarily like executive power that they can, they can make unilateral decisions that uh, totally change everything, but executive power in that they, they're, they're charged with a responsibility to, to make things happen and not necessarily have to uh, run everything in public all the time. Uh, right. And again, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, uh, of fully public organizations where they make sense. But there, there are situations where organizations are dealing with sensitive information and, and it's a strategic advantage to be able to keep them secret. And I think that's one of the, the big challenges that, that fully open organizations are going to have is like out-competing organizations that can have secrets. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think, I think this is the, the criticism that I probably have for like, you know, fully decentralized organizations is you know, at, at scale, you have coordination problems and major secrets, secrecy problems because you, you don't really have anybody, what I would say is stewarding sort of sacred functions or information that can sort of protect the benevolence of the ecosystem. At some point, it seems like there's exploitation that can happen with with that type of like full decentralization. So like, in the case of Opolis, of course, we've opted for an official legal structure in the form of an LCA that's a limited cooperative association for those that don't know, in conjunction with a board of stewards, which has a specific charge and role and anybody sitting on that board has to be a member of the cooperative. And then we layer on the decentralized governance components for decision-making and core issues that, that members actually care about versus like, either silly things that they don't care about or um, I would, I would say benevolence matters that, that the board really needs to deal with. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a good kind of design to have those features in place, like where, where you can actually 
elect some uh, board or some some kind of group, some entity to to represent you in functions that that can't be public or need to be executed on quickly uh, and more quickly than you could do in the public, um, or, or by kind of crowdsourcing those decisions. With I guess with every every kind of decision, there's there's uh, uh, or every kind of governance model, there's trade-offs, and I think this with with kind of fully public organizations uh that that's one of the trade-offs is, is one generally speed and then two the the ability to keep secrets uh and so these kind of hybrid models where where you attempt to maintain the best of both worlds i think are a really really powerful thing yeah i i think we're going to see a lot more of this actually like i i i'm i'm very um i see efforts that are like the fully decentralized world I honor it, I admire it, and I respect it. I just feel like it's almost a little wishful thinking at this stage to like really scale something fully decentralized because we're so used to it. Not Number one, just behaviorally, we're not used to it. And then number two, just systems-wise and technology maturity seems to be a little off in the distance. Like, you know, even the example that you talked about, the native data layer in a fully decentralized world is still not really that solved. I mean, it's it's coming, it's getting better, but metadata and storing private and having private, any sort of privacy on a public chain around metadata, forget it. Like it's still not there. So um, I think there is the, the sort of progressive decentralization approach, which I'm a big fan of. Um, So long as you have the ability to sustain the two things, which is sustainability, which is either some sort of revenue mechanism or just some sort of long-term support system for the ecosystem. And then secondly is the maintain maintenance of benevolence. So you can't, you can't set up any inf- infrastructure that could in theory undermine the benevolence of the entire ecosystem for its membership. Right. If you do that, then you're just doing what everybody else has done historically. Right. Um, I see Scott Sanderson asked a question here. Um, oh yeah. He's, you want to go ahead and answer that? So you want to read it off and uh, Hey yeah, Scott, yeah, good to see you, man. There's a crypto company called Start9. Uh, they said their name is a reference to Twitch uh, gaming where the crowd plays a game. Do you understand the Start9 reference? Um, and it's from uh, uh, Twitch plays Pokemon, obviously, and it's, it's essentially there was a, you could mash the, or mash the start key to switch the uh, mode of the game from like democracy mode to anarchy mode. Um, or or vice versa, <laughs> I believe. And so uh, I think that's the, that's the reference. Um, which is pretty neat. Uh, I wasn't aware of the company, but that's cool. Democracy mode to anarchy mode. I'm sure that seems pretty fun in the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think like the difference there is like, I think anarchy mode, like it just mashes the buttons as they come in. So it's like every single person who inputs, if I recall correctly, every single person who inputs, their, their command gets sent through. And so like the characters just go nuts. Um, whereas democracy mode is like, it, it polls that average periodically, you know, every every second or whatever it is, uh, and so you get more more kind of predictable output, um, and and I guess more of an ability for the crowd to actually play the game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and they come up with some so many crazy like game designs on this stuff. I think it's fabulous. Yeah. Um, so oh, before I said I wanted to come back to um to uh, like incentives. Um, and so like, one of the really interesting things with the, the baseball idea is uh, kind of how the, how the incentives align and, and whether they actually align for good outcomes in terms of the baseball team, like whether they actually align for the baseball team winning. 
Like I could imagine right. a situation there where uh, the you know the the home team, like your 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 crowdsourced game or your crowdsourced team is going and visiting another stadium, and so now all of the uh, all of the home team goes and downloads your app and starts. Uh, you know, voting for you to go and put in all of your uh, all of your bench players and throw the game, uh, or vice versa. <laughs> you know, like if you only do it at home games, then the away team that's coming in, they bring all their fans along and they download your app, and now they start uh, making you throw the game. So, like alignment of incentives is really important when you think about. Oh uh, uh, yeah, the whole the whole cadence of that 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 incentive structure would take quite a bit of time to I think iron it out to make sure you. <laughs> collapse all of the potential attack vectors because right. yeah, if any if anybody is wily about how they do things it's opposing fans right like they would totally exploit the system oh if they sure. if they could well and so that's where like uh i think futaki is actually a really interesting model for that where yeah exactly align, exactly align the uh the, the incentives there for uh essentially like winning the game so you make these combinations of uh of markets you have one market that is essentially like will uh, will the home team win this game? And then uh, every other question that you want to put in, every every other decision that you want to make, kind of spins up a new market. And uh, you're you're combining them. So it's like, if we put in Jimmy, will we win the game? If we, right. uh, you know, and so like you just have this uh, this constant string of these like combinatorial markets that are uh, based on uh, that are essentially making the the decisions based on whether or not that decision will have a positive or a negative impact on the outcome of the game or whether it's kind of predicted to have a positive or negative impact on the outcome of the game. So you kind of shift the incentive from uh, the will of the crowd uh, or the kind of the, the want of the crowd to uh, the, the crowd's prediction of the outcome of that uh, decision. Uh, and and uh, when I say like their prediction, their actual, their, their willingness to put money on it. Uh, so I think something like so like, almost like a prediction market outcome. betting on the the decisions of the actual like team management and like yeah it could be interesting it could be really interesting so before we run out of time here I want to get back to just a couple of things about the Opolis stewardship yeah, yeah. your involvement and like tell everybody about that so um, you're on the board of stewards yep really yeah. excited about it yeah and um, so Tell us how you see that, like, and, and you're a member, so, you know, you, you've got all the hallmarks of you're a freelance guy, you work with people overseas, you've got, like, you know, you, you live in the States, you got to have your little support system, so the Employment Commons is a good fit for you, I mean, just functionally. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now, you're, your involvement is on, on the board and, and all of that, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, so obviously, yeah, the employment comments, I, I immediately see the value of it because I've, uh, I mean, I guess to put it really bluntly, I, I came from a country, Australia, that has pretty great universal health care. Uh, it's, it's not the best in the world, but it's, it's decent. And, and moving to America, having to deal with the, the private health insurance industry here, uh, I, I've had a really, really rough time with it when I first uh, moved here uh, kind of as a non-college athlete. Um, and had to try to track down health insurance. I got stuck in this really, really terrible health insurance plan and it cost me thousands of dollars uh, uh. In, in medical bills outside of the, the health insurance premium because I didn't realize how bad it was just because I didn't kind of understand it having come from a, um, a, a, a I guess more of a, a universal healthcare system. And then having, having kind of switched health insurance providers a few times as a, uh, as I've moved through different uh, roles and stuff, it's it's uh, become 
yeah, kind of, again, pretty burdensome. And so I, I immediately see the value of, uh, of Opolis and of the uh, employment comments just from that, like being able to kind of create some stability in, in uh, what uh, health insurance providers uh, I, I'm able to kind of select. And then also, uh, obviously, the price of them. Like the, this is another thing that was really foreign to me coming from, uh, from Australia uh, was just the, the idea of like these radically different rates that you can get through the, I guess, the kind of collective bargaining through, you know, like having, having an organization who can buy in bulk health insurance as opposed to having to buy it as an individual. So that uh, I, I find kind of really valuable as well. And then on top of that, obviously, with the commons, there's a whole bunch of other services that I will more than likely utilize. Uh, but yeah, haven't, uh, haven't kind of dove much deeper than uh, past the, uh, the health insurance and like accounting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, the, the thing that kind of really draws me to it, aside from like the, the obvious financial saving and, and kind of stability in, in health insurance, uh, is just that I'm very much into this idea of kind of platform cooperatives, where you have these, uh, these platforms uh, that are owned and, and kind of run by the uh, the people using it or the, the, the kind of uh, people kind of contributing value to it. And so the example I always like to give is like, imagine uh, an Uber where uh, the drivers are, are stakeholders in the organization. They, they own part of the organization. Um, right. They have some uh, some governance rights in the organization. Uh, it's uh, uh, That's an Uber that probably wouldn't be having all of these massive court battles right now because it would have had a, uh, and we would add on. mechanisms to align the long-term incentives, right? Or the, 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 the outcomes, the desirable outcomes would have, would have been stayed aligned instead of diverge over time and growth. Right. I mean, right. Exactly. It's inevitable so when you have a boardroom in a traditional C Corp who wants something different than what the actual participants of the ecosystem want. Right, exactly. And so that's that's the thing kind of ideologically that really uh, draws me towards the employment commons is it's, I, I see it as a really uh, tangible uh, and kind of pioneering example of uh, a platform cooperative. Yeah, well, not to mention the possibility for mass user adoption. They don't even know they're participating in something that might be crypto-y or blockchain-y because most, right. ev- most everything that exists right now is very crypto-native. And like, not that friendly to like just average people that might want to think about using something like this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested in it from that point of view. Um, like, just uh, crypto has been, uh, as a whole, has been searching for, you know, those use cases which are, are going to kind of help it break into mainstream usage. And I think that the only way that that's really going to happen is when it starts being embedded into other systems uh, that. Uh, essentially abstract that away, uh, provide 100%. some value that is, that is not, uh, there's not contingent on it necessarily being uh, a, a blockchain based solution, but where that blockchain based solution kind of enhances uh, or en- enables some functionality that otherwise uh, would. Exactly. So we just got a couple minutes left. So before we uh, say adieu, um, we have the, the launch of our token paper coming out next Tuesday. You want to give anybody a sneak sneak uh, hint on anything that uh, that might be coming? Right. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's a good read. Um, I I don't know. I'm not sure what to hint at there. That's, that's uh, I don't know. You, you caught me off guard with that one. I'm not sure. Like, 
it, it's it's well worth diving into um, if you haven't checked out any of the uh, the kind of documentation that exists on the uh, employment commons yet. Uh, then this will be a, a really great kind of primer into uh, really getting a feel for for how it works and how it aligns incentives. I think that's uh, until really diving into this uh, and helping contribute to this. Uh, I, I didn't really have a full picture of how that alignment works. And so this is uh, this was kind of really informative on that. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a grand. I mean, we could call it a grand experiment. I mean, the the interesting thing is is the the underlying business, even just as an employment cooperative, will work perfectly fine. It's just you know the the long term value creation, align, sustainable alignment of incentives, and just really sharing in success and or failure of you know, what we all do jointly in this commons is really, you know, the larger question, right? So it's going to be a really, really fun experiment. Um, I don't think it's much of as much of an experiment as we might be thinking it might be, but I mean, it is because no one's ever done it, but it's also, I think it's taken us a long time to kind of distill it down to, to really simple kind of mechanisms and, you know, keep it, keep it down the fairway so people can understand it. But um I'll give a quick hint. So let's put it this way. You're going to want to join the employment commons sooner rather than later because the incentives are heavily skewed towards early adopters. So anybody who's on the fence about whether to join the employment commons or not, you know, I would take a hard look at it. I mean, open enrollment's coming up. You know, you've got to be making healthcare choices and decisions anyway. It's free for 12 months. You really have nothing to lose. And you know, it's really a set it and forget it kind of thing. So once you get kind of onboarded and everything, it's just really the mechanism and engine that drives your employment, your paycheck, your compliance, all the other necessary evils that we got to do with, you know, kind of our commercial lives. And, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So that's next Tuesday for everybody who's um, wondering when that's going to be. So keep an eye out for our Twitter channel, our, you know, Twitter feed and all of our other social channels um, we'll be posting it on our website and also through Medium. Um, so check it out and, uh, yeah, feel free to engage the conversation. We'll also be uh, um, standing up some much more ag- active community channels. So we'll have a Discord and uh, Telegram that will be open and available so you can pop in your questions and we'll go from there. So, Aaron, it's great to see you, man. Yeah, this has been and, just thank you for your input and wisdom on all of this game design and, and, and just thinking through all of the mechanisms, you know, quite frankly, it you know, it takes teamwork to make the teamwork. And, and I think just, you know, the board's involvement in this really made it, you know, made this possible. So thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. I mean, thanks for, for looping me in on it. It's been uh, really interesting to kind of watch it take shape and, uh, and to have what little bit of input I've had on it, which has been nice. Yeah, well, it's great. Well, I look forward to working more with you and uh, and uh, we'll see you on the flip. So for everyone else, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Opolis Public Radio. Remember to subscribe to our Opolis YouTube channel for more videos like this. And wherever you subscribe to your podcast, don't forget to subscribe there as well if you prefer the audio version. If you're a freelancer, gig worker, solopreneur, entrepreneur, you know, or you just want to get in on something cool and fresh, check out opolis.co, that's O-P-O-L-I-S.co, and find out more about the employment commons and becoming a self-sovereign worker. We'll see you on the flip side. That's all we got for today. Bye. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you liked the episode. If you did, please leave us a rating or review and don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.